It's my contention that there is no sound sweeter on the earth than the saints joining their voices together to sing God's praises. If you have your Bibles or your scripture journal, I hope that you do. I want to invite you to open with me to Luke in chapter 4. If you're in a scripture journal, that'll be on page 30. If you don't have a scripture journal and you want one, go ahead and pick one up on, there's two tables at the back of the worship center. They're on there or the welcome desk. Grab one, take it home. That'll be our gift to you and bring it every time you come to help you navigate these texts. So today, as we continue our study on the Gospel of Luke, we'll be on verses 1 through 13, okay? 1 through 13, and it'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation as well. And so if you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. God's Word says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And they, when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Amen. This is God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. You are being watched says Russell Moore. The demonic powers have had millennia to observe human nature, but that's not enough. The spiritual powers out there are expert cosmic farmer ranchers and our customized temptation plan that fits the way your desires particularly work. They notice what turns your head, what quickens your pulse. Like the Roman guard feeling around with a spike in one hand and on the Lord Jesus' arm, Seeking his vein under the skin, the dynamic beings are marking out your weak points, sizing you up so that they might crucify you. They'll find what you want, and they'll give it to you. I wonder, do you realize this? In your day-to-day life, how often do you contemplate the temptations that are being thrown your way and just what they're trying to to accomplish. Do you ever wonder why they're tailor-made just for you? I wonder how often do you remember that you're at war against the principalities and powers, the spiritual forces of wickedness, and that the demonic realm, demonic realm is both real and desires for you to embrace anything that would keep you from Christ. 
Or have you, by virtue of your profession in Christ, assumed that temptation will no longer come? Or that it will become easier to manage or less frequent or simply isn't a problem? Here before us this morning, we have a scene that is all about temptation. And it's all about Jesus. And it's all to show us how he's one for us. And how he's a model for us because we who bear his name are targets of the forces of darkness too. And all by virtue of our identification with him. Jesus, fresh off being publicly hailed as the Son of God at his baptism, is driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness and is tempted like Adam was. And like Israel was when they were in the wilderness. Though the outcome promises to be very different. And friend, consider this. If Jesus wasn't above being tempted, how can we be? Instead, we're given this particular passage of Scripture in order for us to see how temptation can come to us and how Jesus overcame it so that we can see that we too can ward off temptation through his power, his victory, and his promises when temptations in life inevitably come. Before we get to our points, we must first set the scene. We noticed last week that whereas Matthew places his genealogy as the first thing in the gospel, Luke places it between Jesus' baptism and his wilderness experience. Why? Well, the answer rests in verses 38 and 22. And the mere fact that this happens in the wilderness, that Jesus is declared the Son of God by the Father, and that he is Son of God in a greater way than the other Son of God mentioned Adam, along with his success resisting temptation in the wilderness, tells us that Jesus is the head of a new humanity and a truer, better Israel who succeeds where both Adam and Israel failed. The placement shows us that Jesus is uniquely qualified to represent both the nation and humanity. And you could, you could thus see why Satan is eager to tempt him. This man, Jesus, this unique son of God, this God in the flesh, bringer of a new kingdom, is a direct threat to Satan's rule and is a threat to Satan's kingdom. Satan's tempting of Jesus is an act of war because Jesus is the coming king who will be Satan's defeat and Satan knows it. Now, you might think, looking at Jesus' temptation here, that this is something unique to him and very different, right? Like, we are not the God-man. We, we are not the unique Son of God come to rescue the world. And we cannot overcome all temptations without spot or blemish like he did. But what does this say to us then? How does this apply to our lives? Well, it is true in some sense that these are unique temptations that we'll never, we will never face, at least not like this. <coughs> but Daryl Box says this, Satan may not replicate the same temptations with us, especially since we are not the unique son of God, but he does use the same key issue to tempt us, namely, a challenge to faithfulness. More adds this, you'll be tempted exactly as Jesus was because Jesus was being tempted exactly as we are. You'll be tempted with consumption, security, and status. You'll be tempted to provide for yourself, to protect yourself, and to exalt yourself. And at the core of these three is a common impulse to cast off the fatherhood of God. So mark it, friends. 
Now that Jesus has resurrected and ascended, Satan is making a last-ditch effort to do damage to the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom that you and I belong to. Your identity and allegiance to Jesus means Satan and the world do not have your allegiance. Satan doesn't like that. And now that Christ is physically in heaven, you're the target. You realize that? You're the target. Because as Christ's representative, you are light that is to shine to expel that darkness. You are, as an individual, we are, as a church, in a, in a war. And you have a target on you because you've identified yourself with the opposing nation that's not of this world. See, what this all comes down to, okay, brass tacks of this temptation in, in this gospel and in our lives, it all comes down to loyalty and identification. Who do you belong to? Who or what has your ultimate allegiance? This is why Satan keeps prefacing temptations with, if you are the son of God, then. Which sounds an awful lot like the serpent's question in Genesis 3 of God. Did God really say? Resisting and overcoming temptation comes down to the question of loyalty because not only will Satan try to exploit your identity and try to bring it into question, but he will try to get you to forsake that identity. And cast off that allegiance to Christ in favor of other things that will be alluring to the eye, but in the end they promise what they can't pay. Because as Puritan Thomas Brooks said, Satan presents the bait and hides the hook. Well, since loyalty is the overall theme of this passage, let's make it the driving force of our points this morning, which lay out nicely according to each of the three temptations. So, three points, starting with point number one. Loyalty... Trust God's provisions and timing. Point number one, loyalty trusts God's provisions and timing. We're told in the opening verses that after Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness, which means that Jesus being exposed to temptation was not his fault in any way, right? He was simply following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But let's be sure to note that the Holy Spirit does not tempt Yes? Because, as James says, God tempts no one. So the Holy Spirit leads him to the place of testing, but does not himself tempt. Now, also, note that this happened over the course of 40 days. Notice that it says, being tempted. Do you see that? Which means that Jesus was without food, being tempted for the entire 40 days. Okay? But we're, we're told of only three of these. This does not mean that Jesus went through just three temptations, but was tested all of the 40 days. The gospel authors simply tell us of three. And as Jesus is out in the wilderness, note the place of Israel's testing, Satan comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Do you see what what Satan is doing? Jesus is hungry. Yes? He hasn't eaten in a long time. He is weak. He is vulnerable. And this is when Satan chooses to strike. This is the craftiness of Satan. What better time to strike than when Jesus is presumably presumably at his most vulnerable point? 
Well, what better time to give in to temptation than when we are at the point of desperation? But this also comes down to whether or not Jesus trusted in the Father's provisions and care and timing. Satan wants to cast doubt on God's care and is subtly suggesting perhaps God has abandoned Jesus. And maybe Jesus needs to look out for and take care of himself. But on top of this, what Satan tempts Jesus with is in, in, in and of itself not sinful, is it? Like, people have to eat, don't they? Is there something sinful about eating? Doesn't God want Jesus to eat and be fed and live? After all, he's the son of God. Doesn't God care about him? Perhaps God is holding back some kind of good thing from Jesus that Jesus should have. Would God really be upset if Jesus turned a stone into bread so that he could eat and live? Who could fault him for that? You see what he's doing? What Satan is doing is tempting Jesus to use his power to provide for his own need and bypass God's plan. This sounds a lot like Eden, doesn't it? What did the serpent tempt Adam and Eve with? He tempted them to doubt God's provision for them, and he made it sound like God was holding back good things. Even though God had given them everything. And friend, you too will be tempted with the same kind of thing because when we sin, we're just repeating Eden. Satan wants you to think that God is holding out on you and that you're owed the good things in life independent of God's provisions. And as I was thinking about this, I was just contemplating the idea of the demonic, right? In America, it seems like the belief in like literal Satan and the demonic is like a fringe these days, like kooky idea outside of the mainstream, right? <clears throat> the supernatural, the unseen, we don't really want to believe that. But if you, and you can ask any missionary this, if you go outside of America and the West, in many countries, you don't have to convince them that the demonic exists. They have little trouble believing in the supernatural. This is because they see obvious signs of the demonic and the occult all around them. It seems that what C.S. Lewis said was, said was right, that there are two equal and opposite errors which humans can fall into about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence like we do here. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, like some of you do here and some do overseas. But I wonder if the reason we don't think about the presence of supernatural evil is because the forces of darkness don't have to work through those things like they do in other countries. And by this I mean in other countries, what may work for Satan and his lackeys to tempt and get people to not believe on Christ is demonic possession and cults and literal idols and statues and voodoo and things like this. While here in the West, Satan uses wealth and comfort and material things and reputation. Things that are more subtle and which don't seem bad. Because again, think about what Jesus is being tempted with here. It's just food. Food is good. Starving is bad. You should get what you want, shouldn't you? 
And that's the line that our culture uses all the time to entice us to the better and the more. Shouldn't you have everything you want? Why should other people have things that you don't? And the reason you don't have what you want, culture says, is because you haven't gone out there and gotten it for yourself. Our culture says you deserve everything and all you need to do is grit your teeth and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and go get it. That's what Satan said to Adam and Eve, though. God is withholding from you. He doesn't want you to be like him. Just take and eat, and you'll have everything you deserve. I mean, when millions of Americans huddle around gigantic TVs and wasting billions of dollars worth of food in two weeks from today to watch grown men play a sport on a field... What will be put in front of their eyes every few minutes? Commercials. Isn't that part of the draw? And companies are paying, get this, around $6.5 million per ad to do what? Offer you the same message. You should have this thing. Because you deserve it. And because it'll make you happy. And they know it works, which is why they pay so much. And you know who else knows that tactic works? The demonic. Which is why they will tempt you to bypass God's plan and provision to get what you think you need. And they'll take advantage of your vulnerability and situation. And they'll tempt you with things that are, in and of themselves, not sinful but you'll be tempted to use them in sinful ways or to focus on them as your hope and the things that will make you happy or they will tempt you to circumvent what God should, has given you. The temptation will be to use something good in a way that is outside God's design for it. That's what Satan is doing here and what he's been doing since Eden. So how does Jesus combat this? He answers Satan with what? Scripture. Doesn't he? Specifically, Deuteronomy 8.3, which says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, when tempted to be independent and self-sufficient, Jesus says he'll follow God's will instead. He says that he will rest on God's sustenance and provisions given in God's way and in God's timing. So when we're tempted... With things we know God prohibits, instead of seeing them as things that God is withholding, we err on the side that God knows better than we do, and that his will is far superior to our own. You ever think about this? Maybe the reason why you don't have something is because it's not in God's will for you. Right? Culture's like, just go out and get it if you don't have it. What if God just doesn't have it for you? Maybe it's outside his will for you to have that thing. Not because you haven't gone out and gotten it, but that's what sin is. Sin is thinking we know better than God. But to resist temptation is to believe in God's promise and provisions and to remember that not only does he know better, but that what he has for us is better. And he's all we really need. 
And remember, this is fundamentally about loyalty and trust. Who do you belong to? If God, then why would he withhold from you something you need? Is the message of the gospel fundamentally about our taking the initiative to secure salvation for ourselves, or is it that God took the initiative to secure our salvation through the life and work of Christ? If it's the latter, then our identity and allegiance rests in God, not our circumstances or things or our longings or even our deeds. It says more again, the satanic powers don't care if your illusion is one of personal grandiosity or of self-loathing as long as you see your circumstances rather than the gospel as the eternal statement of who you are. Temptation can be fought by resting in Christ, finding your identity and loyalty in Him, and combating temptation with Scripture. That was Jesus' weapon of choice, wasn't it? So if Jesus used Scripture to fight back temptation, if it was His weapon of choice to defeat Satan, shouldn't it be ours too? Do you think? Again, the impulse, yes, for us, and fighting temptation will be to rely on our ability to resist, right? And to overcome. But that's not what Jesus did. Even Jesus relied on Holy Spirit and the Word to combat the satanic onslaught. He knew the Word, and he hid the Word in his heart. And when Satan's assault came, over and over again, he used Scripture as his defense. So should we. Friend, can I ask you, do you make the reading of the Word a daily priority? Do you make it a non-negotiable of your daily life? Do you memorize portions of it so that when temptation inevitably comes, you can bring it to your heart and mind, the sword of the Spirit, and combat temptation in the likeness of Christ? I'll tell you, Satan will do, do you know this? He'll do anything to keep you from the Word. Do you know that? Your busyness, your schedule, or distractions like entertainment and extracurriculars, social media and television and hobby, whatever will work. I wonder, is it working on you? You know, in the first letter, in C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters, you know, this fictional demon, Screwtape, is writing these letters to his apprentice demon, Wormwood, and he's talking about of a time he almost lost the person he was assigned to who was like this ardent atheist. He almost lost him to what he calls the enemy, who is God. He said almost 20 years of work to keep him away from God, undone, all because the man picked up the Bible and began to read. And this is what Screwtape said. He said, if I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. To this, says Screwtape, God suggested to the man that this reading was more important than lunch. But Screwtape countered this by telling the man that he could simply set aside the word, go eat lunch, and come back to it. Next thing you know, the man is heading out the door. And guess what? It worked. The man put aside the reading, 
He went to lunch, and he didn't, in fact, come back to the Word. Does that resonate with you, I wonder? Have you put off consistent Scripture reading because something more pressing just came up? Or have you put it aside, convinced you'll start at some point, but never quite getting around to it? I've been there. But have you made time for other things? Friend, find time to get into the Word every day. Carve out times to intentionally get into Scripture. And if other things are taking your time away, and it makes you feel like you don't have time to read a chapter of the Word of God, Every day, which will help you fight that which would steal your affections and attention from Christ, maybe it's the other thing that needs to be cut off from your life. Jesus needed the word, and guess who else does? We do. So we see that Satan failed with temptation one, and so he moves on to something else, which brings us to our point number two. Loyalty trusts a cross. Over a crown. Loyalty trusts a cross over a crown. In verses 5 through 7, we're told that Satan showed Jesus all of the inhabited world and all the kingdoms of the earth, and he said, I will give you authority. Simply bend a knee, and you get to bypass a cross and suffering and pain and rejection, and you get everything right away. What a deal. And again, Satan is taking advantage of Jesus' situation. Jesus is in the wilderness. He's alone. He's hungry. He's tired. He truly doesn't have anything, right? Anything. And it's in this space where, where Jesus has nothing that Satan enters and says, I'll give you everything right now in exchange for your allegiance. But now here's a question. Could Satan really make this offer? Like, were all the kingdoms of earth his to give? And, and, and it, as is the case with Satan and his temptations, this is a mix between truth and error. Okay? Is that my alarm? I'm not done, all right? Daryl Bach, Daryl Bach calls this offer a diabolical self-delusion. It's an oversell, okay? D did Satan have authority? Yes, but he couldn't give away the whole world. <laughs> his authority was then as now is limited to what God allows, okay? He's on a very short leash. He offers the world. He may think he could give it, but not really. But even so, the temptation is real and alluring. What this temptation came down to was ultimately about seizing power on one's own, apart from God's promise and provision. Again, see, when God said at Jesus' baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. We're meant to think back to Psalm 2. Where the son is promised to inherit all the kingdoms of the earth. But you see, for Jesus to reign over all things, he must suffer and die. Satan was saying, you don't have to do all that. You don't have to suffer and die. He's a direct line to power. All it costs is just bend a little knee. Satan was offering Jesus a shortcut. Instead of living a life of rejection and be beaten and tried in a kangaroo court and be executed naked and alone on a cross for the sins of the world and be laid in a borrowed tomb, Jesus can be king now. 
Skip all that suffering nonsense. The devil was offering Jesus a crossless messiahship. Leon Morris, in his commentary, said it meant compromise. It meant using the world's methods. For Jesus, it meant turning his back on his calling. His kingdom was of a very different kind. He'd already identified with sinners he had come to save at his baptism. That meant the lowly path, not that of earthly glory. It meant a cross, not a crown. Now, the temptation will never be presented before you to get all the kingdoms of the world, right? But the temptation will be before you to obtain power, exalt self, to get what you think you're owed or deserve, even if it means compromise, even if it means bypassing God's will. That temptation will come before you. And even more, the temptation will always be before you to bypass a cross, to avoid the hard path, to avoid the low path, to avoid the mean path, to avoid pain and maximize pleasure and to take the quickest and least painful route possible says more again, the satanic powers are watching you. They're peering into your life to see what catches your attention, what puffs up your ego. They're evaluating what kind of Babylon you want to build for yourself, and they'll make sure you get it. Satan is ambitious for your goals as you are. Maybe even more so. He'll give you the power you want, the glory you crave, as long as you fall down and obtain it his way. The pain... The way of Christ is strange in a world of instant gratification and maximization of comfort, isn't it? Patient cross-bearing. It seems so unnecessary and odd in a world of quick fixes and shallow spirituality. I mean, really? Really? Who wants to take the difficult and painful path when ease is offered? The way of Christ of ordinary faithfulness, of purposeful last place, of humble selflessness, it's weird to our fleshy impulses and our world, even what we think is logical and preferable. And Satan knows this, and he'll exploit it. He also knows that comfort and ease are the enemies of progress and growth. Did you know that? which is why he tries to convince us that they're the best way to live the good life. Maybe they are, but they aren't the way of the Christian life. I think of an illustration um, Russell Moore gives in the, his book, Tempted and Tried. He says that scientists found that if a cow is distressed when they die, and maybe you know this, they release hormones that will downgrade the quality of the meat. Do you know that? So slaughterhouses changed how they did things in order to make cows contented and comfortable. They make their surroundings familiar. They don't yell at them. They don't do anything to surprise them or unnerve or hurt them ahead of time. In this system, the cows, they're not prodded off the truck, but they're led in silence onto a ramp. And they go through a squeeze chute, which is a gentle pressure device that mimics the mother's nuzzling touch. And the cattle continue down the ramp into, onto a smoothly curving path. There are no sudden turns. The cow experiences the sensation of going home. 
The same kind of way they've traveled so many times before, they don't even notice when their hooves are no longer on the ground. As the conveyor belt lifts them slowly, gently upward, and then in the twinkling of an eye, they're killed. They're transitioned from livestock to meat in an instant, and they're never aware enough to be alarmed by it. Satan's tactic is to woo you and comfort you, to assure you that the difficult path of Christ isn't worth it, that you deserve a crown and not a cross. And it may even seem gradual and slow. Isn't that how falls work? They're rarely sudden. Gradual and slow, without any sudden turns, no alarming sights, and all seems well until you actually begin to crave the conveyor belt. But where does that lead? Maybe we should start to seek comfort. I'm going to say something that might sound really radical in our culture. Maybe we should start to seek comfort as the enemy of sin-killing gospel growth rather than the goal of life. Maybe what Jesus has for us is a cross that leads to glory and a gospel that promises safety and ease in this life is actually a lie from hell. There are no spiritual shortcuts in the kingdom of Christ. Growth is hard work. You know this? But it's a joy. Because it's informed by the same Jesus who went before us on the hard way and won the victory. And the same Holy Spirit who was with Christ indwells you. So we can fight temptation and we can kill sin and we can forgive freely and we can serve sacrificially and we can put others first. We can have community with people not like us and not because of our ability, but because of his. And the same impulse you thought you were uncomfortable before, the same impulse to comfort and shortcuts exists in the church. Do you realize that? This is why the inclination for decades in the American churches has been to do things we've always done or what we like or to rely on programs and human creativity and entertainment and division built on affinity and attractionalism and consumerism and pragmatism because those things will always be easier than the simplicity that says the main draw is the exalted Christ. The other way is quicker, clearly, and seems easier, especially when the measurement of success is things visible and tangible, like numerics of attendance figures and budget sheets, which you won't find in the Bible, rather than the simple and less tangible but biblical membership, measurement of faithfulness and discipleship. Faithfulness as the measure of success, it's terribly inconvenient because it requires patience and oftentimes pain and discomfort, but it's the way of Christ, isn't it? Satan wants Jesus to bypass the hard road for a direct path to power, but it would come at the cost of allegiance to turn his back on God's way, and it would lead not to glory that it promised, but to ruin. So what does Jesus do? He turns to Scripture again, and he says, I will worship and serve God alone. Jesus didn't want a crossless messiahship. His loyalty was to God alone, and he believed that what God had for him through pain was superior to what Satan had for him through ease. 
there are no conditions on Jesus' loyalty to God. He will follow his will no matter the cost. He wants nothing that bypasses the Father's way. What about you, I wonder? Ask these questions in your heart. Are you putting conditions on your loyalty to Christ? Have you made for yourself a Christianity that avoids discomfort and pain? Are you prepared to follow Jesus even if it costs? Even if it means loss of reputation or loss of friends or even loss of your life? Are there parameters to your followership? Or do you see the glory of Christ and what he's done to get to you and say every day, not my will, but yours be done, no matter the price? Because you paid the ultimate price to secure me. Nothing you can ask of me is too much. Jesus' use of scripture, of course, it works. Satan moves on to his last dish temptation in 9 through 12. And this will be our last point. Third and final point, loyalty trusts rather than tests. Loyalty trusts rather than tests. The final temptation sees Satan and Jesus at the pinnacle of the temple, which is so high, you couldn't see the bottom of the Kidron Valley below. And according to historian Josephus, just looking over the edge made people dizzy. And what does Satan do? He quotes scripture. Do you see that? From Psalm 91, which speaks to God's protection. He, and he tempts Jesus, throw yourself off the pinnacle and have faith to be caught by the angels because you are God's son and God will surely protect you. You know, what's frightening about this one is that it shows that Satan knows his Bible. And he knows it better than you and I do. <laughs> and it shows that Satan can even tempt in a way that seems spiritual. Like Satan, Satan is bathing his temptation in scripture and spirituality. Further, think about the location. Like it, we, we're, they're already in the wilderness, right? You ever think about this? Why well, go all the way to Jerusalem, to the temple, for this? Surely there are plenty of high places in the wilderness that you could do this with and say, throw yourself off and God will send his angels. This is why. The reason for the temple locale is because the temple pictured God's closeness. So in light of God's proximity, Jesus can feel especially free to cast himself down. That God is near, you're God's anointed. Scripture says God will catch his anointed. So throw yourself down, test God's care for you. If you trust him, throw yourself down and let's see. You see how deceptive this is? Satan makes it seem like to jump would be an act of faith. When really, it's a lack of faith. Why would one test God? Because you want to test him for him to prove himself to you. Satan wants Jesus to put God in a sort of show me position to force God's hand to prove his protection of Jesus as his anointed, like Psalm 91 says. But Jesus knows, as we've said, his vindication will only come after the cross, not before it. And so he doesn't put God to the test. In other words, Jesus has trust in God's plan and shows his faith by not leaping. Satan wants Jesus to test God under the guise of big faith. If God loves you, he'll catch you. Let's put him to the test and see. 
Do you have that kind of faith, asked Satan? Does God have that kind of love for you? Let's find out. True faith isn't putting God to the test. You know this? Or using faith and spiritual language to act foolishly. That's not faith. Faith ought to to not be a cover to act recklessly, right? You shouldn't go run blindfolded on I-75 and say, I don't fear. I have faith that God will protect me. That sounds spiritual, but it isn't true faith. It's foolishness. True faith is trust in God's provision and vindication in the mundane and in the ups and downs of everyday life, even if it means a cross. True faith doesn't call on God to prove himself. True faith says, through it all I will worship because God has already shown that he is for me in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't need to test God. He's already shown himself in so many other ways. Del Ralph Davis says on this passage, this temptation packs important correction. Genuine faith doesn't need sensational proof of God's attention. To press for that is testing God, not believing God. How does Jesus show his faith? By turning around and walking away from the pinnacle of the temple, which ought to teach us that God can be trusted when he is not sensational. Faith is not demanding the spectacular, but remaining content with the ordinary. Jesus answers with yet another passage of Scripture, this time Deuteronomy 6.16. Let me read you the whole verse, okay? It says, You shall not put the Lord your God to test as you tested him at Massa. Those, this should be familiar to those who were with us in Exodus. Does that sound familiar? Do you guys remember Massa? This was the second place... Israel complained about having something to drink after God had, you know, no big deal, rescued them from slavery, right? And personally led them out of Egypt. The people turned to Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you put the Lord to the test? And so that that incident was remembered in Israel's history as a place where Israel put God to the test, something that would be a theme for their entire story. Daryl Bach says, in Exodus, the nation had presumed on the Lord's guidance and deliverance by complaining that they never should have come out of Egypt. Freedom and manna were not enough. Jesus is comparing the devil's offer to such a test. It says, in effect, I do not think you will take care of me as son, so to be sure, I'm going to place you in a situation where you must take care of me now and on my terms. The demand of miraculous, listen, that a man of miraculous protection where it is not needed is not faith or loyalty, it is sin. So Jesus refuses. Jesus reminds Satan and us that he will not do what Israel did. He will not put God to the test. He doesn't need to test the boundaries of God's care for him. He will not doubt his presence, protection, and provision. He will not skirt God's way to pursue another way. He wants nothing this world has to offer. Just God alone. We're being shown that Jesus is the truer, better Israel. He succeeds in his wilderness experience. He does not give in to temptation. He does not grumble against God. He doesn't give in to the lures of this world, but it keeps exclusive loyalty to the Father alone. And even though Satan flees in verse 13, we know we'll see him and his flunkies again, won't we? And I imagine, don't you, 
When Jesus is betrayed and arrested and his friends tuck tail and run and the crowd shout, crucify him! And he's flogged and his bones are exposed and he's hoisted to a Roman cross. And he cries out that he feels forsaken and he breathes his last. And he's laid in a tomb with no rising or falling coming from his chest any longer that Satan and hell thought they had won. Don't you think? We did it, boys. We defeated God's Messiah. Tempting in the desert didn't work. The demonic possessions in his ministry didn't work. But finally, the Christ was killed by the very people he came to save. But three days later, the grave rumbled, and life was restored to Jesus' chest and the stone was moved aside, the victorious Christ walked right out, and Satan was defeated. Even more, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and was given dominion over every square inch of the galaxy, and then he sent the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who was with Jesus in the wilderness and in his ministry, the same Holy Spirit who put life back into Jesus' formerly dead body, and he's the same Spirit who will indwell anyone who would give their allegiance to God's victorious King. So friend, when you struggle with temptation, as I know you do, as I know I do, don't despair. I bet you're struggling with something right now. I bet sometimes you don't trust God's provision or doubt his care. I bet sometimes, I know this because I know me, you know, sometimes you want to circumvent the cross to traverse the easy and most comfortable path. I bet sometimes you grumble and put God to the test. I bet sometimes you not only give in to temptation, but put yourself in situations where you will be tempted. Sometimes you don't fight sin. Are you excuse it or you convince yourself it isn't a sin under the guise that God wants you to have whatever you want. But deep down in your heart of hearts, you know it's sinful. I bet sometimes you just don't want to change your habits and routines or stop hanging out with that group of friends in order to get more of Jesus or cease being put in bad situations. Does any of that describe you, I wonder? To you, I bring good news. Jesus won the victory for you. Your identity is in him, not your deeds or lack thereof. Your status in the kingdom of Christ is not in question. And it doesn't depend on what you do or do not do, but in what he did for you. But seeing that, right, and knowing that should overwhelm you to the point that you desire a renewed life. You desire to kill sin. You desire to get more of Jesus. You desire the difficult path that leads to a cross because you know on the other side of all of this is glory with Christ. And the further good news is that God in his sovereignty and providence has provided you with this space to repent and renew your trust and allegiance and carve a path forward that recognizes temptation and makes war with it because you have been empowered by the Spirit of the living God to gain victory. 
Russell Moore in his book I mentioned a few moments ago, has a pretty good test to recognize what Satan and his band of jabronis is tempting you with. He calls it the desert island test. This is what he asks. He says, what is the thing you would do if you could do anything? You can make it happen exactly as you wish and could then go back and reverse time so that it had never happened. No consequences in your life, your work, your family, or judgment day. What would it be? Whatever comes to mind might be a pretty good insight into where it is your desires are being farmed. But then he adds this, Jesus endured the desert island test. He was indeed in a deserted place with no one around and no one, no one of flesh and blood anyway, would ever know if he'd yielded to temptation. But he stood there trusting and obeying for himself and for you. Tempted and found obedient to God in his desires, Jesus is an able high priest and a head of a new humanity. He is able through the spirit to conform our desires to his own being other directed towards God and neighbor. That's good news. How can you fight temptation and win? Let me give you four application points and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Four quick application points. How can you fight temptation and win? First, get in the Word every day and stay in the Word. Just take it up and read, okay? Just take it up and read. You don't need a Bible plan, although those are helpful. You don't need them, okay? Just pick up your Bible, start in Mark, or Matthew, and just read a chapter a day. It'll take you 10 minutes. Download a Bible app on your phone, like the ESV app is good, the Literal Word app is good. They're free. Grab the Dwell Bible app if you want to uh, ask Ken. If Where's Ken? Where's it Ken? There he is. He's hiding. Ask Ken about the Dwell Bible app, and he'll tell you how awesome it is. If you want somebody to read it to you, Dwell Bible app, uh, just take up and read. <laughs> Make the Bible non-negotiable part of your life, okay? And I lost my place, okay. Uh, second, <clears throat> pray in and rely on the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you want to learn more about the Holy Spirit, go back and listen to our podcast, our series called Forgotten God on the Holy Spirit. Make prayer part of your daily Bible reading. Wake up in the morning and pray to the Spirit to empower you and to help you recognize temptation. And, and to help you recall the word to fight against it, okay? Third, be a consistent part of FBC. Tap into the available times we have for you to learn and grow. Make Sunday worship gathering like today a non-negotiable of your life. Also, so, so you can hear the word preached, right? Come to Sunday school and hear how to apply biblical principles to your life. Come to Wednesday night Bible study and learn how to read and interpret scripture. You know, we do all those things for you, right? <laughs> That's all for you, to help you grow and fight temptation and love Jesus more. That's what they're for. Tap into them. Join a life group so that you can experience community with people who you can grow to know and love you and be a place to confess sin and struggles and temptation so that others could pray for you and help you battle in the darkness. The Christian life was never meant to be done alone. Okay? And friend, you can't do it alone. Okay? You're not that awesome. All right? Lone Ranger Christian get picked off by the devil. Like, you ever watch those nature shows and, like, a herd of antelopes is, like, hanging out or something and a lion is waiting in the bush and she jumps out and the herd takes off, but, like, there's this one lone and injured one or slow and they can't keep up? Guess who gets eaten? The one off by itself. Satan would love for you to try to do Christian life on your own because he knows you can't do it. 
You might say, what if I don't know the people of Life Group, or what if I've tried groups before and don't like it, or maybe I'll be uncomfortable. To this I say, do it anyway. Embrace the discomfort and grow, friend. You're going to be in heaven with these folks, all right? And if you're not a member of FBC, and you've been thinking about joining, come hang out with me during the Sunday school hour at 9 a.m. starting next Sunday in classroom B for our new member uh, class, all right? You don't have to be a prospective member to come. It's open to anybody. But come and learn about why the church and why this church specifically. And lastly, fourth, pick up some good books on this topic, okay? I'll recommend you three. If I go too fast, ask me after service, okay? Mike McKinley wrote a little book called Did the Devil Make Me Do It? It's like 80 pages, all right? You can read it in the afternoon. Did the Devil Make Me Do It? Mike McKinley. One I've been mentioning, Russell Moore, called Tempted and Tried. It's an excellent book. And Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote one called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Thomas Brooks, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Devices. So if you want to know any of those after service, let me know. Okay, let me, let me read you one final quote from N.T. Wright, then we'll come to the Lord's table together. He said, The Christian discipline of fighting temptation is not about self-hatred or rejecting parts of our God-given humanity. It's about celebrating God's gift of full humanity and, like someone learning a musical instrument, discovering how to tune it and play it to its best possibility. At the heart of our resistance of temptation is love and loyalty to the God who has already called us his beloved children in Christ. And it holds out before us the calling to follow him in the path which leads to true glory. In that glory lies the true happiness, the true fulfillment, which neither world nor flesh nor devil can begin to imitate.